the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What about the children? Yeah, what about the children in Gaza? Uh, The Israelis are having to defend themselves against the world now for bombing Gaza because of the huge numbers of civilians uh, being hit by the bombs, many of them children who are being injured or killed. Uh, There's no reason to believe the numbers that Hamas has been putting out, but that doesn't mean that lots of innocent kids aren't dying. Of course, Hamas is well known for um, exaggerating the number of casualties, but despite that, most of the media are reporting those numbers as if true. Now, nobody wants to see kids or, or any innocent civilians die, obviously, but there is a difference here. Have you seen any of the videos of the Palestinian kids being taught taught on video to kill Jews? Uh, have you seen, happily, by the way, have you seen kids who are happy to say on camera that when they grow up, they want to kill Jews? I saw a video out there uh, recently of a young woman with two kids, apparently hers, sitting in front of her, uh, depending, uh, pretending to be Jews, and she took a gun and pretended to shoot each one in the head, and the kids played along and fell over as if they were dead, and then she smiled. There was an interview with a Palestinian holding his infant daughter, When he was asked if he would like to see her become a suicide bomber to kill Jews, he said he'd be proud if she did. I just saw another video today of lots of Palestinian school kids running through a hallway. They were obviously in school somewhere. They appear to be between 8 and 10 years old. They were dressed as Hamas fighters, laughing and pretending to kill Jews. So could you blame the Jews for being a little less sympathetic when they hear about kids in Gaza dying? Uh, there are videos out there of young men who took part in the October 7 massacre uh, from, for Hamas, uh, and they called their parents and showed them the video of them torturing and killing little Jewish kids. And then the parents can be heard on the other line, on the other line telling these uh, murderers how proud they are of them. Now, 10 years from now, the kids, it's, uh, you can see, pretending to kill Jews on video right now, They'll be that age and ready to do it for real and become martyrs. So imagine if you knew that in Ohio, kids were being raised to be proud of killing your kids. And imagine that a few weeks ago they had become, they had come um, across the PA border and done what Hamas did in Israel. Would you feel a little different when you heard about how innocent children are being killed? The videos from October 7 make it pretty uh, clear that Jews in Israel are dealing with a different animal It's too bad that the world can't come together and figure out a way to rescue the kids in Gaza from their parents. When we come back, our bi-weekly visit with Jeffrey McCall, professor of communications at DePaul University, media critic at The Hill. He's going to talk about, among other things, his latest column. And in our second half hour, you'll be happy to find out that you are helping your neighbor pay for his electric vehicle. Stick around. There was another round of Republican debates last night, and once again, I did not fail to miss it. And based on what I've heard, I didn't miss much. It was on NBC. One of the highlights was Vivek Ramaswamy saying that the Republicans were 
idiots to allow NBC to host their debate. Jeffrey McCall is a professor of communications at DePaul University and a media critic for The Hill. He joins us now. Good to have you back on, Jeff. Thanks for coming. You're welcome, John. So was Vivek or Vivek uh, uh, right? Uh, can you imagine the Democrats allowing Fox News to televise a debate during their primary campaign? <laughs> well, I think there's a lot to what Vivek is saying there. And I mean, basically, he's calling out the establishment media for what it is. And basically, the establishment media has become a partisan mob uh, to advocate for one side of a political point of view. Uh, now, that uh, doesn't mean that there aren't contrarian views out there, that you can find those on Newsmax and you can find those to a certain extent at Fox News and other websites and whatnot. But I think when you look at the mainstream media, or as we call them sometimes, the establishment media, uh, they're activists in nature. They have particular points of views or narratives that they want to push, and they're out there pushing those. And I think it doesn't hurt anything for candidates like Vivek, or, and where's the Republican National Committee on this, to be calling it as it is. Uh, and I, honestly, I'm surprised that the uh, Republican National Committee would want NBC to host a, a debate, a, a quote-unquote debate, uh, with Republican primary candidates. Uh, I don't have anything particularly against Lester Holt or Kristen Welker, but I think they come from that kind of mindset of the establishment media that they are uh, presumptuous, that they are smarter than everybody else, uh, and that they want to put their thumbs on the scale. And they've kind of abandoned the traditional tenets of professional journalism in favor of journalistic activism. And I just would say if I were the Republican National Committee, I wouldn't open the door for that and help legitimize them to let people think that they're trying to be traditional journalists when pretty much they've given up on that kind of strategy. As I said, I did not watch it. I can't take it. Um, I, I just, I just, I know that going in, I'm not going to miss anything. And I've been, I haven't been uh, wrong yet. Uh, when I check out the, the post debate commentary and the, and the highlights, did you watch the debate and did you see any new ground broken anywhere? <laughs> well, I must say, I passed last night, too. Uh, I'd, I'd watch the other ones, and I kind of figured we know how this is going to go. It's yep. going to be kind of the same old thing. We had fewer people out there, so at least there was more time for the candidates uh, who were there, uh, which is not that bad of a thing. But I kind of figure uh, if you don't have all the people who are still like in the field, so to speak, like Doug Burgum from North Dakota, and if Trump's not there at a certain point, uh, it, it's like uh, having a single-A baseball game in your Major League Baseball stadium. Uh, and that's not to say that there's not baseball being played, but you don't have the big-time players there. And I think you need uh, to have a robust discussion. And, it, and, and I just think, you know, it's, it's, not only, it's not just the undercard. It's kind of like before the undercard, and <laughs> I just think it's not that helpful. And I don't think that it moves the ball forward. And, I mean, we've had a couple of these now uh, going back to last summer. I don't think any of them have been noteworthy. Uh, all the candidates show up and try to get a couple of zingers or one-liners in there, but they're not noteworthy. They haven't moved the needle for any particular candidate, as far as I can tell. Uh, if anything, they've helped Trump solidify his position in the polls. And so the part of the question is, why is the RNC even going through this whole situation? Why are they even allowing this to happen? Is it kind of a waste of time? And I would suggest... For all the candidates involved, they'd be probably better to be on the ground in Iowa or New Hampshire because 
they're going to have to make an impression in Iowa or New Hampshire one way or the other. And I'm not sure being on a debate stage in Miami talking to Lester Holt is going to convince anybody in New Hampshire to support you uh, when primary season really opens up. And any of those five candidates that were on the stage last night, if they don't make a splash in New Hampshire and show that they've got a shot uh, to, to get ahead of the other four and put a dent in Trump, they're not going anywhere anyway. So, I mean, this is all kind of a wasted effort on a lot of people's parts. And frankly, I don't even know why NBC would want to host that, except just to give a little profile to their own anchor people. Because when you get right down to it, the major network news organizations are not well regarded anymore. The ratings aren't that great anymore. So they're probably desperate just to put something on during prime time other than a stupid game show or a, a, a melodrama that nobody's going to watch. Yeah, I I um I just wonder though, Jeff, does does what was uh, shown last night even qualify as a debate? When and and th- there were five, I guess it was last night, and uh, the previous ones have been I, I like eight or whatever it was. The first one, um, to me, a debate is one on one. It's you debating me. It's not you and three other people debating me, and then me debating you and three other people. That. It's um, it. I I don't know where it, how it developed into that, but I don't know why they haven't been able to haven't been a little bit creative and come up with a way. If you have five people who want to debate, do different segments and have Christie debate Ramaswamy for fifteen minutes, and then have Vicky Haley uh, debate somebody, uh, you know Scott for for fifteen minutes and switch it up. And uh, but it's just it's not a debate, is it? Does it qualify as one? No, it's not really a debate in any traditional sense. I mean, it's almost like a series of mini press conferences. Uh, And so, so, I mean, they're disjointed. Uh, And honestly, if you were really going to have a debate, I think you would want those candidates up there and addressing each other with questions rather than to try to field questions from partisan journalists. And I think that's part of the problem is the journalists want to help make the news or insert themselves into debate. Or as I sometimes have said in the past, the journalists become pseudo-debaters in a political debate that's supposed to involve other candidates. And I think that always screws up the whole process. And so you're exactly right. And the format you're alluding to, you know, would be worth trying. And I think the RNC, also be if worth they really watching. wanted to shake things up, let them have it. It would also be worth watching. Um, you know, during the campaign, you hear, you'll see uh, a sound bite where, Jeff Christie criticizes Ramaswamy or vice versa, or uh, Vicki Haley criticizes um, Scott. And you could put them in a position to say, okay, this is going to be Scott versus Haley. And you sit him at a table and you say, uh, Mr. Scott, you get the first question. And he could say, uh, Ambassador Haley, you said X, Y, and Z about me, I see here uh, last week. Uh, could you explain that? And then, let, then go at it. That, I'd watch that. Yeah, it'd be closer to the uh, Lincoln-Douglas format yeah. of a century and a half ago where, you know, they, they, they were the only two candidates, Lincoln and Douglas. Right. Uh, and this was a, a senatorial campaign at that time, actually. Mm-hmm. But they were on a stage in various places like Galesburg, Illinois, for an hour and a half or two hours, and they were just having a, a you know, back and forth themselves. And the one thing is, if we pair these people off with many debates of their own where they're directly, directly addressing each other, if you had Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley having a little spat like they had last night, it wouldn't just be called off after 10 seconds. 
they'd have another 15 minutes to have to yeah. go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, you know, it would really add for some rhetorical uh, depth and heft to the discussion. And when you have these little things where the, the answers are limited to 30 seconds or a minute at most, you know, there's no rhetorical heft there at all and no depth. But that's part of what the TV producers want. I mean, the TV producers are looking for excitement. And, you know, it's sad to think that you had those candidates on the stage there last night for a couple of hours in prime time. And this morning, all anybody's wanting to talk about is Nikki Haley kind of muttering under her breath that Vivek is scum. And he was talking about her daughter on TikTok. And I'm thinking, that's the highlight of a discussion you yeah. know, where these people want to be president. And you think of all the issues in terms of international tensions and the economy and the border and stuff like that. And the highlight that's featured on CNN this morning is, oh, Vivek was talking about Nikki Haley's daughter being on TikTok. And that's really, really in the so what category. Embarrassing. So the Republicans in the House came after the tech companies hard a few days ago. Uh, They showed emails that they say show the Department of Homeland Security coordinated with Stanford University, which should be interesting to you as an academic yourself. Um, to uh, create something called the Election Integrity Partnership, which sounds kind of scary to me, just the title of that. You know, you make a great point, because when I first heard about this Election Integrity Partnership, I thought every red-blooded American should be afraid of any government project that's labeled in that way. Because almost when you label it that way, it's a rhetorical signal that it's really not about election integrity at all, that this is a made-up, propaganda kind of ploy to convince everybody that we've got a legitimate thing to look at when really we know that they're only looking at a particular partisan point of view and you know the fact that this was uh, sponsored by the department of homeland security really made me curious because i'm thinking should the department of homeland security be most concerned with outside interference or influence coming from abroad or someplace else and i'm thinking Think of the people that showed up in this discussion, in this uh, so-called uh, integrity investigation. You know, we're talking about columnists like Molly Hemingway. We're talking about political figures uh, like senators in the United States Senate. And I'm thinking, these, these people are not like terrorists or uh, undermining the government by commentary. Michelle Malkin was another one in there. I'm thinking, hey, she's an intelligent person, has a lot to say. Why is the Department of Homeland Security targeting her? She's not going to, you know, she's not showing up, you know, with a demonstration in front of the White House. All she is is a commentator. And when you think that they are viewed as threats uh, to the Homeland Security office, that that gets very dangerous in terms of the rhetorical sphere. Uh, and I, and honestly, I'm glad this report has surfaced. And thank heavens, you've got people like Jim Jordan. Uh, in the House of Representatives, who can root these kinds of things out now. Uh, be, and by the way, if you did not have a Republican majority in the House right now, these things would not be surfacing yet. Not a chance. And the American yeah. population would still be in the dark about what I think are really dangerous kind of deep state operations. And I, and I don't want to go all conspiracy theory here, but I must say, anytime you've got government agencies trying to monitor the conduct of elections, uh, they are way out of line, and I think that's a very dangerous precedent. We're talking to Jeffrey McCall. He's a frequent guest here, and uh, he is a professor of communications at DePaul University. He also is a media critic for The Hill. And uh, in your column at The Hill, I don't know if it was out today or it's your, it's your most recent column, but 
Uh, you wrote about what Donald Trump should expect from the media this time uh, compared to 2016 and 2020. So what should he expect? And should he expect anything different, really? No, no he'll, he'll expect more of the same and maybe even harsher treatment than he had the first go around. Uh, the, the column that I wrote uh, hit the Hill website earlier this week and was part of a of a series uh, that the Hill's editors put together of what uh, the nation might look like uh, after the next presidential election, whether Biden won or Trump won. Uh, and my charge was to kind of like, what would the media approach to Donald Trump be if Donald Trump won a second term, uh, you know, coming up in 2024? And so my point was, well, to kind of get a sense, you look at how he was treated in his first term. And we know that uh, all the research has demonstrated uh, that Trump was treated very negatively uh, throughout his first term in office. And that that is not just me saying that. That is based on research conducted by the Pew Research Center, which is a reputable public, public opinion polling agency, and also the Shorenstein Center, Harvard. Uh, so, I mean... They produced research that showed how unfavorable the traditional media's coverage was of Trump. Uh, and that's not to say that Trump didn't do some things that deserved some negative coverage. But the point here is this news coverage of Trump was overwhelmingly like 90 percent plus negative. And I'm just thinking, whether you like Trump or not, this is not the point. The point is uh, the news media can frame narratives to make anything look good or anything look bad. And this was a conscious effort by the establishment media to paint Trump as the, the villain, the demon, so to speak, uh, and to, in, in a sense, try to undermine his administration. Uh, in fact, even in the first hundred days before he even had a chance to help make decisions. Uh, and then, of course, the media took off on this whole Russian collusion narrative uh, where they kept putting people like Michael Avenatti front and center on cnn and they made a, a national hero out of adam schiff for his uh, impeachment investigations and we now know that both of those guys were totally frauds and charlatans but that didn't keep the media for two years from putting those guys on time time all the time and making them national heroes to the left so to speak uh and so my point is basically in this article that uh you know trump got very bad treatment but it would be even worse probably in his second term uh, and one other thing I'd like to say real quickly is, you know, the, the media doesn't like Trump for a lot of reasons, ideologically for one thing, but they also don't like that Trump criticizes the media. And I'm thinking, hey, you know, you need to get a little thicker skin if you're going to work in the media. Uh, and Trump has every right to criticize the media as much as he wants. We, we know at various times Joe Biden has criticized the media, and even Barack Obama did. Uh, but Trump has criticized the media, but in terms of press rights, Trump really didn't diminish the media. I mean, he tried to take a press credential away from CNN's Jim Acosta, but that failed in the courts. And so when you get right down to it, Trump's behavior toward the media, other than to criticize them, which he has every right to do, his behavior to the media was probably less threatening to the press than what Joe Biden's been trying to do over the last couple of years by establishing a disinformation governance board and also probably less threatening to the establishment media then when President Obama approved the surveillance of actual journalists from the Associated Press and Fox News uh, while he was in office. And I think those are much more dangerous than a guy standing on a stump saying, you know, fake news. I don't like CNN, that kind of stuff. I'm out of time. But uh, uh, real quick, uh, the the, um, 
the sales departments at the legacy media outlets like Trump a lot, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Trump boosts ratings, that's for sure, because people want to read about Trump, whether they like him or not like him. Uh, so he's good for the for the media, uh, whether it's the establishment media or the or even right leaning media. He just does generate clicks and ratings. Hey, hey uh, so do you on our radio program here, Jeff. I appreciate you coming on. <laughs> <laughs> Always great to talk with you, John. Thank uh, you. All right, that's Jeffrey McCall. You can find his uh, column at thehill.com. We'll be right back. Oh, do you own an electric vehicle? Uh, if you do, be sure to thank your neighbor who doesn't uh, for for helping to pay for it, because that's what's happening over there, because uh, he is helping to pay for it. E.J. Antoni is a public finance economist at the Heritage Foundation, and he joins us now to talk about this. E.J., thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, John. So I don't own an electric vehicle, so how is it that I'm paying for my neighbor who does? Well, it's a great question. You know, a lot of the ownership costs for an electric vehicle are, are actually covered by government subsidies and handouts, whether it's from the government or from utilities. And so taxpayers and utility ratepayers uh, are paying literally half the cost of what it takes to own uh, an electric vehicle. So I mean, we're looking at subsidies on everything from uh, the mining of the minerals that go in to create the batteries, the actual uh, assembly of the vehicles and most especially the charging of these vehicles, all of it is underwritten heavily, again, by taxpayers and also by utility ratepayers. So how is how are my taxes helping to recharge my next-door neighbor's car? Well, as soon as you own an electric vehicle, you get all kinds of tax credits that go towards not just uh, the electric vehicle itself, but also the charging cost, the uh, the actual charging unit, because you typically can't just plug these things right into a regular wall outlet. So the typical charging unit, the installation of that charging unit, all those things are subsidized. And then on top of that, government is also paying utilities to give a discount to customers who have these electric vehicles. And then the utilities themselves, because they usually can't handle the additional load that it takes to charge all these electric vehicles, they then turn around and offer discounts to electric vehicle owners to charge them during off-peak hours. Well, they they couldn't be trying harder then. Uh, when I say they, I mean the government and who knows who else, um, aside from the people who are actually going to buy these things voluntarily. They couldn't be trying any harder to get people to buy them, and they're not buying them, are they? No, it's exactly right. The astonishing thing is that you have over $50,000 of costs on every single EV that the owner doesn't even have to pay for. They get passed on again, largely the taxpayers. And yet, despite that, despite about half the cost of the EV effectively being hidden, you still can't get Americans to buy these things, certainly not in the quantities in which they're being produced. Um, So uh, could you explain the charging of it, like a single horsepower is 746 watts uh, you have here in your piece, and the engine in a typical American sedan is strong enough to provide more than the maximum amount of electricity four typical American homes are wired to handle. What does that mean? Well, essentially, we really underestimate just how much energy, just how much power is in gasoline and diesel fuel. 
And so when you hear a number like one horsepower, that may not sound like a lot, but in terms of electricity, it sure is a lot. A single horsepower, as you said, and as we lay out in the piece, is almost 750 watts. And so a single American sedan has more than enough power to, to create the maximum amount of electricity that four American homes could even handle. And so what about when you have to take an electric vehicle that's going to try to produce that much horsepower and you're going to try to, to charge that in someone's home? That's going to draw an insane amount of power. If you tried charging the vehicle all at once, it would draw much more power than the home can even handle. And so it obviously has to be spread out over the course of many hours. And I mean, that's desirable, too, from the standpoint of it. It makes the batteries last longer. But even still, an EV can draw up to 10,000 watts while it's charging. And most American homes just simply, or I should say most utilities, simply can't handle that kind of draw on a large scale. Because, you know, just for some context here, 10,000 watts is eight times the average amount of electricity that the typical American home draws. So if we look out at a, uh, a picture of, the, uh, of a freeway out there in, near L.A. packed with cars, if, what are we supposed to, what, what can we imagine is going on there if we decide that every one of those is going to be electric? Well, we simply don't have the infrastructure. Uh, I mean, we're not even close to the infrastructure to, to electrify an additional 5% of the fleet, let alone 50%, which they want to do in just a few years, and then eventually 100%, which they want done uh, only a few more years after that. And yet the Biden administration is absolutely hell-bent on what is today a scientific impossibility. Now, you know, who knows, maybe 50 years or 100 years in the future, every vehicle will be electric because we'll have all kinds of technological breakthroughs. I mean, 100 years ago, we didn't even have nuclear power yet. Who knows what the future is going to hold? But for right now, we don't live in the future. We live in the present. And the, in the present, we don't have the technology. We don't have the infrastructure to make these things uh, mainstream. And so... You have it. You have it broken down about the the, the cost, uh, comparing a, uh, a, the cost with the uh, a cost of a gallon of gas and and what you get per gallon, and I think I saw the number seventeen. It's seventeen dollars and thirty three cents a gallon to run an electric vehicle. How do you come to that number? Well, a lot of the these uh, you know electric vehicle apologists like to say that you know charging an electric vehicle is the equivalent of spending only a dollar and twenty one cents a gallon on gasoline. In reality, though, the the difference or the the actuality, I should say, is a whole order of magnitude greater than that. It comes to over seventeen dollars once you start removing again all of these subsidies, all of these handouts, these tax credits. You know, these, these lower rates that the utilities are, are being paid to offer you or sometimes have to offer you to incentivize you to charge uh, your vehicle at a time that, that they actually have the capacity uh, on, you know, on their grid. So, again, once you start adding up all these little things everywhere, you find that it's not a dollar and something. It's over $17 to charge the electric vehicle. But you hear a dollar twenty one and you think that's great. Meanwhile, it's only seven percent of the true cost. But it's not it's if I own an electric vehicle, I'm not paying seventeen dollars and thirty three cents. 
Oh, correct. You're not. Yeah. But you are certainly you are certainly paying more than than the dollar and twenty one cents because you know you've still had to pay not the entire cost but some of the cost of having an EV charger uh, installed on your property. Uh, you know you are paying some of that uh, uh, some of those utility uh, discounts because you at the end of the day are are a member or I should say are a customer uh, of your utility. And so it's like this fiction that government, for example, uh, can give somebody money at no cost. And if they do that for everyone, guess what? Everyone's paying for it. Yeah, this seems like a something that socialists would like a lot. It's uh, oh, ab- you don't absolutely. think of the you know when you look out at the Parkway West here or Parkway East here in Pittsburgh at rush hour, uh, to start thinking about you know you pull up next to a really nice looking uh, electric Escalade. And you think, hey, I'm, I wonder how much I'm paying for that. <laughs> Tens of thousands of dollars per vehicle. That's not an exaggeration. Over $50,000 of, of taxpayer money and of utility ratepayer money is going into every single one of these electric vehicles, except that if you don't have an electric vehicle, you're not getting any of the benefits. So you're absolutely right. This is socialism. I, I can't think of a better word for it. But one of the ironies here is that it's socialism for the rich because who are buying electric vehicles? It's not the poor. It's not even most of the middle class. It's certainly not the lower middle class because these vehicles are going to cost at least $20,000 more. Typically, it's like $30,000 more, though, than their conventional vehicle counterparts. And so, and again, that's with tens of thousands of dollars in subsidies already baked in. And so the people who are buying these things are disproportionately the affluent. And yet we're going to give them a handout. And and um, as I said, uh, socialists would love this because um, on the surface it looks like this is a wonderful thing. We're going to save the environment. And um, it's only the rich people right now who are buying the cars and they can afford it. And that's good that they're spending a little extra money to save the planet. But uh, how many people do you think are walking around knowing that this whole, the whole electric vehicle thing is a is a scam. It's basically what it is, isn't it? Oh, certainly. There, there have been many empirical studies done that that walk through uh, every everything in, the, in terms of the life cycle of an EV. Again, all the way from sourcing the raw materials uh, to the vehicle's final disposition. In other words, how it has to be junked and what parts can be recycled, what go to landfills, etc. And once you factor in everything, soup to nuts, including operations you find that you actually put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere with an electric vehicle than with a conventional vehicle. So even if you want to reduce carbon dioxide, which it's not even clear if that's eminently desirable, but even if that's your goal, you're still not doing that right with an electric vehicle. We're, uh, you know, it's, it's, we're talking to E.J. Antoni. He's an economics uh, expert from the Heritage Foundation. Um, this... How long do the um, car companies go keep trying to push this? They're losing tons of money. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's that hard to figure out that these cars are not flying off the showroom floor. But you still almost it's almost like every other ad, maybe more often than that, is for an electric car that most people don't want and aren't going to want. 
Right, right. Again, it it really speaks to just how much consumers don't like these things. That despite tens of thousand dollars, tens of thousands of dollars, excuse me, in subsidies for every single one, the manufacturers still can't sell the darn things. And so that's why just a few days ago, you had both GM and Ford announced that they were cutting back on EV production and on on battery facilities because again, they, they just can't sell these things. Except, what is the government doing? They're turning around and effectively forcing manufacturers to build these. And one of the main ways they do that is by telling them, if you build an EV, you will get seven times the carbon credits than you actually save with an EV. And so the only way that these manufacturers can meet government regulatory standards, especially on things like emissions, is by producing EVs, even though the environmental benefits that are allegedly being created are being grossly exaggerated. And and that those aren't my numbers. Those are the EPA's numbers. The federal government itself has already admitted that this is how the fraud works. So let me see if I got this right. The, the um, electric vehicles are, uh, they're so clean that it makes it worthwhile to subsidize them because it means less people using those dirty gasoline engines well i mean allegedly that's the logic but the problem is that that doesn't stand up to the facts right, right. Uh, again again evs simply do not offer the benefits that their apologists claim and so as a result we are we are essentially throwing billions upon billions of dollars that's not an exaggeration down the drain. The the so-called Inflation Reduction Act uh, literally gave tens of billions of dollars to EV projects. And none of that is going to return, uh, excuse me, none of that is going to have a positive return for taxpayers. What it did was it essentially gave all these auto manufacturers loans that don't have to be paid back if the vehicles don't sell. It gave them loans to build all of these EV facilities. Well, guess what? The vehicles aren't selling. Well, what about uh, gasoline tax that disappears if I buy if I buy an electric vehicle? I'm no longer pay, buying gas, a lien. And here in Pennsylvania, I, I I believe we still have the highest gasoline tax in America. So, how does Pennsylvania? I think, I think it's the second highest in PA now. Okay. Well, we you know we'll, we'll catch up. Um, how, how does, um, how, how does a state that's uh, part of the uh, push to get more electric vehicles, isn't the state cutting its own throat as far as revenue? And, and doesn't that, don't those fuel taxes go to fix the roads for the cars oh, that do more and damage? One of, one of the, you're, you're absolutely right. One of the great ironies here is the fact that electric vehicles, because they are so much heavier, again, than their conventional counterparts, they do more damage to the roads, especially over a long period of time, like like 10 years, the typical lifespan of one of these things. And so you would think that they should be taxed more heavily, not less. And that's why a lot of states have responded by instituting new taxes specifically on electric vehicles. And so when you do, let's say, your annual registration, for example, some states charge you extra for having an electric vehicle, again, to try to recoup all of that lost revenue. Because you're right, these states are essentially shooting themselves in the foot when they force people to get electric vehicles and then miss out on all that tax revenue. So what's going to happen here, uh, EJ? This None of this makes any sense whatsoever. It, it's, it, it actually seems to go against every 
um, every common sense economic idea that's out there, and it's still being pushed. How long can it survive? How long can a product that costs so much and nobody wants to buy continue to survive? Well, as long as the politicians are willing to subsidize it the way they are. And, yeah. and I think that will continue as long as we, the people, allow our elected representatives uh, to do that. But when people start getting voted out of office for supporting these things, that's when they start to change their minds. Because one of the funny things about politicians is they are people just like you and I, and they operate on incentives just like we do. And if we make those incentives painful enough, then they will stop doing the wrong thing. I'm just about out of time here, but I, I just wonder how many uh, does the average person even consider any of this? Do most people are still are they still walking around thinking that EVs are saving the environment and they're boy you don't have to buy gas they're cheaper. They ha- I think that's still out there for most people. Oh, most most likely, absolutely, and and that's frankly that's why I do a lot of the things I do to try to help educate my fellow citizens. I read through these reports. And these data so that you don't have to, because trust me, it's not a lot of fun doing it, but we have to get the word out. We need to we need to have the truth in people's hands so that they can make informed decisions. Well, I won't be buying an EV anytime soon. and You have uh, convinced me even more to put it off even longer. I appreciate you coming on, EJ. John, thank you for having me. Okay, that's EJ and Tony, public finance economist at the Heritage Foundation. I'll be right back. Well, we haven't seen the effects yet of uh, the people of Allegheny County electing a socialist to be their county executive. And uh, it will be fun to watch as we begin to see it. But one of the things to look for, I guess, is homeless encampments. And uh, we've had uh, we've had the the guy from Eyes on Pittsburgh, um, Eyes on PGH on several times. That's a he's got a um, he's he's got a production company that's doing a documentary on the homeless and he has a little timeline here from today. Uh, I guess um, on what's the date today? The ninth. So two days ago, um, Lee Schmidt, the director of public safety, uh, along with other city officials, arrived on the site of the First Avenue encampment. Isn't it nice to have them actually have their own names and. Um, and uh, 11-7, that was the day of removal. He arrived. So, And as of Tuesday night, the day set by the city for decommissioning, the encampment still stands. But then yesterday, Lee Schmidt and city officials arrive again on the site. Uh, but uh, They were supposed to, but they didn't show up. And the Pittsburgh Department of Public Works makes several trips to and from the encampment, armed with a crew of 15 to 20 men without touching a thing. And then... Uh, also yesterday, Pittsburgh Public Works box at clearing anything with various uh, advocacy groups, activists, and homeless individuals themselves. They pack up each tent at that specific location on the evening of 11 8 that's last night, and then they leave trash and other stuff behind. So then uh, today, uh, Pittsburgh Public Works arrives this morning to clean up the remaining pieces of what was the First Avenue homeless encampment. So the, the slobs that were living there, the um, the vagrants who were living there and just, you know, pooping on the street, doing everything that they do, uh, they left and they picked up a lot of the stuff, but they left some junk behind. So then, <laughs> that was today, this morning, and now, uh, also today, 
roughly 50 yards away at the Fort Pitt Boulevard and Grant Street encampment, several additional tents pop up overnight, nearly spilling over into the street. So that's what you have. Welcome to Portland, Portland East. So they clean up for these slobs that poop on the street and make things miserable, and they just pick up their tents and move to another corner. Good luck with that. Congratulations on your new county executive. I'm sure she's going to clean things up right quick. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.